Hello, Earnings Call listener. My name is Hadi Youssef. I run this earnings season podcast, but I also run the Borster Earnings Call mobile app, and that's what I wanted to quickly tell you about today. We've created a dedicated app for listening to earnings calls. What I mean by that is that we've basically created the Spotify for earnings calls. Our app lets you add any company to your watch list. You can download any earnings call to your phone. You can set notifications for specific companies for when a new call is available. You can also see the exact date of the earnings call. And if there is a company that isn't on our app yet, you can request a company within our app and we will promptly add it. Making earnings calls easy to access is something that I care a lot about. It's why I created this earnings season podcast. But obviously, we cannot add every single earnings call that gets published on this podcast, or else you'll be having hundreds of episodes every week. And so, we've created a dedicated app where you can go and pick and choose the exact earnings calls、uh, you're interested in. And what we post on this earnings season podcast are basically kind of the highlights or the most notable earnings calls. But in the show notes of this episode, I've included a video demonstration where I walk you through all the features that I just described for our app. And I also included the link to the App Store where you can go there and see the description of the app and the reviews. You know, I'm really proud of the feedback we've gotten from our users. And,、uh, you know, pleasing and satisfying our, our users and our customers is, is something that I、uh, take pride in. And, and as a team, we、uh, really pride ourselves on that. And so, I don't want to take more of your time and, and keep you from listening to the earnings calls you've selected today. So, without further ado, here is your earnings call. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second quarter 2019 NXP Semiconductors earnings conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require operator assistance, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Jeff Palmer, Vice President of Investor Relations. You may begin. Thank you, Sonia, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to the NSP Semiconductor Second Quarter 2019 Earnings Call. With me on the call today is Rick Clemmer, NSP's CEO, Kurt Sievers, NSP's President, and Peter Kelly, our CFO. If you've not obtained a copy of our earnings press release, it can be found at our company website under the Investor Relations section at nxp.com. This call is being recorded and will be available for replay from our corporate website. Our call today will include forward looking statements that involve risks and uncertainties that could cause NXP's results to differ materially from management's current expectations. These risks and uncertainties include, but are not limited to, statements regarding the macroeconomic impact on the specific end markets in which we operate. The sale of new and existing products and our expectations for the financial results for the third quarter of 2019. Please be reminded that NSP undertakes no obligation to revise or update publicly any forward looking statements. For a full disclosure on forward looking statements, please refer to our press release today. Additionally, during our call, we will make reference to certain non GAAP financial measures which exclude the impact of purchase price accounting, restructuring, Stock based compensation, impairment, merger related costs, and other charges that are driven primarily by discrete events that management does not consider to be directly related to the underlying core operating performance of the company. Pursuant to Reg- Regulation G, NXP has provided reconciliations of the non GAAP financial measures to the most directly comparable GAAP measures in our second quarter 2019 earnings press release, which will be furnished to the SEC on a Form 6K and is available on NXP's website in the Investor Relations section at nxp.com. I'd now like to turn the call over to Rick. Thanks, Jeff, and welcome everyone to our conference call today. Today I'll start with and preside, provide some mid and long term strategic commentary. Then Kurt Sievers, our president, will review the in market、uh, revenue details of Q2 and provide revenue guidance for Q3. And finally, Peter Kelly will review the financial details of the quarter and expectations for third quarter. As most of you remember, last quarter we discussed company specific design wins in our focused in markets of automotive and industrial and IoT. Today, I'd like to provide additional details and share some exciting new engagements which reflect the momentum we have in our target markets. Within our automotive market, we discussed that one of our key focus areas is radar solutions for Level 2 and Level 3 ADOS vehicles. 
Initially, radar will facilitate automatic emergency braking, which is being mandated by multiple regulatory groups like NCAP in Europe. Eventually, new use cases will be adaptive cruise control, lane change assistance, cross-traffic alerts, and blind spot detection. These features are all dependent on radar as the key enabling function, and ultimately radar solutions will become standard equipment regardless of the car tier or OEM brand, making all of our driving safer. For NXP, we have emerged as the number one supplier for the complete radar subsystem, with radar representing almost 10% of our auto revenues in 2018. To date, our success on the processor side has been broad-based, while the transceiver shipments have been largely driven by a single large European Tier 1, who represents about 30% of the overall radar market and services several major OEMs globally. We're excited that shipments from our design wind momentum will expand based on the initial ramp-up of one of the most innovative North American Tier 1 suppliers, who we ultimately expect to have about 20% of the overall radar market. We are now aligned with the Tier 1 market leaders, which service a dozen of the largest global auto OEMs. Our success in the ecosystem is due to the market-leading performance, product integration, and complete end-to-end solutions supported by the industry's broadest portfolio and roadmap of multi-generation processors and front-end transceivers, both 77 gigahertz SIGI and RFC MOS. And we have additional Tier 1 design wins and engagements ongoing and will continue to invest in the area to expand our market and thought leadership. These engagements continue to underpin our confidence that NXP will outgrow the overall auto radar market with our planned growth of 25 to 30% compounded annually over the next few years. Now I'd like to turn to a very exciting new solution, ultra-wideband, or UWB. UWB is a technology that enables secure relative location and distance measurement with a very high degree of precision and low latency. This is an area we have been, been investing for several years in a stealth mode and believe NXP has a unique first mover advantage which yields category leadership. We see clear interest from participants in the automotive, industrial, IoT, smart home, smart retail, and mobile markets. One of the first use case applications will be to revolutionize the next generation of secure car access solutions. We have a system level solution that leverages foundation IP at the intersection of two existing NXP application areas, automotive, secure car access, and secure mobile payments, both areas where NXP is the undisputed true market leader with relative market share of 2.9x and 7.9x, the number two player, respectively. The overall solution leverages the NXP's market leadership in connectivity, embedded secure element, and digital credential management technology. As announced by the leading German newspaper and mentioned by Forbes, UWB today adds a new level of security to car key fab, FOBs, that can prevent relay station attacks by distinguishing the authentic signal from the relayed or spoof signal. UWB is the most precise, secure, and real-time ranging technology that allows coexistence with existing radio technologies. This will give various applications the ability to process contextual information such as the position of a UWB anchor, its movements, and the distance to other devices with an unprecedented precision to within a few centimeters, which enables decision-making and management of these devices to take place with high granularity. As an example, a consumer could remotely share secure access to home or building from their phone where the door lock identifies the new person through localization and secure credentials before opening the door. In addition to the secure door access, 
Our customers have envisioned applications such as indoor location-based services, highly immersive virtual gaming systems, and many more use cases. This is clearly not a science project looking for a problem to solve. We have developed products and are very actively engaged with leading customers in various target segments in a complete ecosystem. We have won key designs with several customers across the mobile and automotive end markets with volume production to start in 2020. We see the market opportunity developing to approximately $900 million by 2024. We believe our market share will be equivalent with our first mover advantage, unique IP, system knowledge, and high RMS foundational positions. This is an exciting new and incremental opportunity for NXP. Now turning to the industrial and IoT market, on May 29th, we announced the intent to acquire Marvell's connectivity assets. We expect the business to add about $600 million of incremental revenue by 2022, roughly two times its current run rate. This was not an acquisition we executed in the spur of the moment. We spent nearly a year looking at all the connectivity assets in the market. Our conclusion was that the Marvell team provides NXP with an industry-leading connectivity engineering team, a strong complementary product portfolio, and a successful history of fundamental IP development. The product set, and especially the disruptive Wi-Fi 6 portfolio, will immediately complement our key processing, security, and connectivity offerings in our strategic end markets of industrial and IoT, as well as in automotive. As a point of reference, looking at the recent history of all applications and crossover processor design wins we have been awarded in the industrial and IoT market, nearly two-thirds have included a connectivity solution which had to be sourced from other vendors. Connectivity is clearly becoming a must-have functional capability for IoT solutions. We believe our leading processor product offering our broad go-to-market channel and the market inflection by Wi-Fi 6 will all directly underpin the strong growth we have highlighted. We are very excited about the transaction and look forward to welcoming the team to NXP. Lastly, a quick comment on our efforts in the mobile market. As you will remember from our analyst day, our focus in the mobile markets is primarily aimed at the evolution and adoption of the mobile wallet and associated services like transit ticketing. We said our growth in the mobile market would be a function of the increased attach rate, not the fundamental handset unit growth. We believe the mobile wallet attach rate in 2018 was about 30% of all phones, and we are targeting this to expand to about 50% by 2021. I'd like to report that a large Chinese handset OEM has aggressively deployed our mobile wallet solution now across its entire portfolio, whereas in the past the adoption had been only deployed on limited premium models. This customer is strategically focused on increasing its market share in both the domestic China and global handset market and as a result has significantly increased its 2019 launch and build plans. As a proof point, NXP experienced a significant ramp in demand during Q2, and this is a great example of how customers are perceiving the value of NXP's mobile wallet, especially in the domestic Chinese market for mass transit access. Kurt will review the specific details in a moment. In summary, our strategy continues to yield positive results. We will continue to drive focus in our strategic end markets, engaging with customers to deliver superior, highly differentiated products, regardless of the short-term fluctuations in demand. I'd like to now pass the call over to Kurt to discuss the results of the current quarter. Thanks, Rich, and uh, good morning, everyone. I'm really glad to be able to um, speak with you all today. Overall, our Q2 results were above the midpoint of our guidance. 
with the contribution from the mobile market, somewhat stronger than planned, while the demand in the auto market was slightly weaker. Taken together, NXP delivered revenue of 2.22 billion, which combined with good expense control, enabled us to successfully deliver operating profitability above the higher end of our guidance range. Let me turn to the specific trends in Q2 in our focused end markets. Automotive revenue was 1.03 billion, down 10% year on year in line with our guidance. Based on the most recently available IHS data, year on year global car production trends continue to be revised down, especially in China and Europe, the two largest auto manufacturing markets, while the North American market slowed modestly. This had the effect of slightly weaker than anticipated shipments in Q2 for NXP. Revenue in all our major product categories declined versus the year-ago period as anticipated, except for revenue from ADAS, especially radar, which was up double digits, a continued reflection of NXP's differentiated product offerings and our strong customer traction, very much in line with how Rick laid it out just a minute ago. In industrial and IoT, revenue was $390 million, down 14% year-on-year, in line with our expectations as the demand for general-purpose MCU products in the broad-based China market continues to be very weak. However, we saw the expected double-digit year-on-year growth of our crossover processor products abate from a small overall base today. Remember, our industrial and IoT business is primarily serviced through our global distribution partners and relies on tens of thousands of smaller customers, which appear to be particularly affected by the continued U.S.-China trade tensions. Let me turn to mobile. Revenue was $297 million, up 25% year-on-year, better than our expectations. As Rick just mentioned, we continue to see the attach rate of our mobile transaction solutions grow with a broader set of customers and moving from premium to volume and all the way to feature phones. Specifically, in Q2, we saw a large Chinese handset customer who is focused on increasing its market share globally and locally and ramped orders on us, a touch more than what we had anticipated. Lastly, our communication and infrastructure segment, revenue was $499 million, up 19% year-on-year, in line with our guidance. All associated product lines grew during Q2, with RF power solutions continuing to drive strong double-digit growth versus the year-ago period. And consistent with last quarter, we experienced strong annual growth in our shipments for both our massive MIMO and high-power single-channel RF power amplifiers, with the increased demand spread across nearly all the global base station OEMs. Now turning to our expectations for quarter three. In the auto and industrial and IoT markets, our guidance reflects ongoing subdued ordering trends due to macro uncertainty, combined with the anticipated pause in the communications infrastructure market after the blistering pace of growth over the last quarters. Embedded in our Q3 mobile guidance is what we would consider normal sequential order rates from our largest premium handset customer, offset by a sequential step down from the Chinese handset customer we previously discussed. Taken together, This distorts what some analysts would consider seasonality of our mobile business into Q3 of this year. We currently anticipate total revenue will be in a range of flat to up 2% sequentially. At the midpoint of our range, this is an increase of 1% sequentially, or 2.24 billion. From a year-over-year perspective, This represents a decline of about 8% versus the same period a year ago, of which 120 basis points is the elimination of the MSA versus the year-ago period. 
At the midpoint, we do anticipate the following sequential trends in our business. Automotive is expected to be up low single digits versus Q2. Industrial and IoT is expected to be up in the upper single digit range on a percentage basis. Mobile is expected to be down in the low single digits on a percentage basis. And finally, communications infrastructure and other is expected to be down in the low single digits on a percentage basis. We believe the short-term demand environment continues to be challenging and has incrementally weakened versus our prior view. And yet, we do still anticipate the second half of the year to be greater than the first half, so at a lesser rate than assumed earlier this year. In summary, our new product introductions, customer engagement levels and design win momentum in our strategic focus areas continue to be very positive. <coughs> and we continue to be very optimistic about the long-term potential of NXP. And with that, I would like to pass the call to you, Peter, for a review of our financial performance. Uh, thank you, Kurt, and good morning to everyone on today's call. Uh, as Kurt's already covered the drivers of the revenue during the quarter and provided our revenue outlook for Q3, I'll move to the financial highlights. In summary, our Q2 revenue performance was just above the midpoint of guidance, which combined with good expense control resulted in a very strong non-GAAP operating profit. Focusing on the details of Q2, total revenue was 2.22 billion, down 3% year on year, of which 160 basis points was the elimination of the MSA versus the year ago period. We generated $1.2 billion in non-GAAP gross profit and reported a non-GAAP gross margin of 53.3% up 50 basis points year-on-year, year, and in line with the midpoint of our guidance. Total non-GAAP operating expenses were $541 million, down $50 million year-on-year, year, and down $6 million from Q1. Uh, this was $12 million better than the midpoint of our guidance. From a total operating profit perspective, non-GAAP operating profit was $640 million, and non-GAAP operating margin was 28.9% of 190 basis points year-on-year, year, despite a $73 million drop in revenue over the same period. Interest, interest expense was $61 million, cash taxes for ongoing operations were $30 million, and non-controlling interests were $5 million, all modestly better than the midpoint of our guidance. Stock-based compensation, which is not included in our non-GAAP earnings, was $87 million. Now I'd like to turn to the changes in our cash and debt. Our total debt at the end of Q2 was $8.54 billion, up $1.2 billion sequentially as we issued $1.75 billion of new debt and retired $600 million of existing debt. Cash was $3.03 billion. Net debt was $5.51 billion, slightly up on Q1. We exited the quarter with a trailing 12-month adjusted EBITDA of $3.15 billion and our ratio of net debt to trailing 12-month adjusted EBITDA at the end of Q2 was 1.75 times, and our non-GAAP interest coverage was 10.5 times. Our liquidity is excellent, and our balance sheet continues to be very strong. During Q2, we returned $716 million to shareholders as we bought about 6.6 .6 million shares for $645 million and paid $71 million in cash dividends. Turning to working capital metrics, days of inventory was 100 days, a decrease of 13 days sequentially, and a quarter-on-quarter -quarter decline of $97 million. We continue to aggressively manage our distribution channel, and inventory in the channel is very healthy at 2.4 months within our long-term uh, targets. Days receivable were 32 days, a decrease of 3 days sequentially, and days payable were 67, a decrease of 7 days versus the prior quarter. Uh, taken together, our cash conversion cycle was 65 days, an improvement of nine days versus the prior quarter. Cash flow from operations was $517 million, and net capex was $106 million, resulting in free cash flow of $411 million. Turning to our expectations for the third quarter, 
as Kurt mentioned, we anticipate third quarter revenue to be about $2.24 billion plus or minus $30 million. Uh, at the midpoint, this is a 1% sequentially. We expect non-GAAP gross margin to be about 53.7% plus or minus 30 basis points. Operating expenses are expected to be about $536 million plus or minus about $10 million. And taken together, we see non-GAAP operating margin to be about 29.7% plus or minus about 20 basis points. We estimate interest expense to be about $69 million and anticipate cash tax related to ongoing operations to be about $41 million. Non-controlling interest will be about $10 million, reflecting improved loadings at SSMC. I'd like to provide an update on our share repurchase program. As previously mentioned during the second quarter, we bought back approximately 6.6 million shares at a cost of $645 million. Since the beginning of Q3 2018, we have repurchased just over 69 million shares for a total of $6.33 billion. Combined with our quarterly cash dividend, we've returned $6.55 billion to our owners over this period. Our capital strategy continues to be to return all excess cash to our owners while maintaining a target leverage ratio of two times net debt to trailing 12-month adjusted EBDA. During the second quarter, we announced the acquisition of Marvell Connectivity Assets for $1.76 billion. And as we build cash to pay for this asset, we will likely pause our share repurchase program for the balance of 2019. So for the third quarter, we suggest that for modeling purposes, you use an average share count of 284 million shares. Finally, I have some closing comments I'd like to make. Um, firstly, as previously announced, the NXP Board of Directors has decided that NXP will become a U.S. domestic filer as of August 2019, though we will continue to be a Dutch domicile company. As a result, in October, we will file our first quarterly 10Q financial statements, and we will submit our annual 10K in February of 2020. We believe this will ultimately lead to NXP being included in the various broad-based U.S. equity indexes. Secondly, as Rick highlighted, we're very positive about the acquisition of the Marvell Connectivity Assets, and we have now submitted all the required regulatory pre-merger notifications. We received an early termination clearance from the U.S. Federal Trade Commission on July the 11th and continue to expect that all regulatory approvals will be complete by the first quarter of 2020, with a possibility that the remaining approvals could be obtained earlier. As Kurt pointed out, we are pleased with our performance in Q2. Our revenue is slightly better than guidance, and with the contribution from the mobile market a bit stronger than expected, while the automotive market was slightly weaker. Our expectations are that revenue in the second half of the year will be greater than in the first half of the year. However, the absolute performance is likely to be weaker than we originally anticipated at the beginning of the year, or for that matter, at the end of last quarter. Our non-GAAP margin improved again in Q2, and we anticipate further improvements into Q3 as we continue to work towards our intermediate target of 55% exiting Q4. 2019 on flat year-on-year -year revenue. I continue to have confidence in our ability to deliver the, the improvements under our control, particularly as regards to cost control. However, given the current environment, it's difficult to predict what the final revenue for the fourth quarter and its impact on gross margin might be. Uh, so with that, I'd now like to turn the, uh, the call back over to the operator for, uh, for your questions. Sonia will now poll for questions, please. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you have a question at this time, please press star than one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. To prevent any background noise, we ask that you please place your line on mute once your question has been stated. Our first question comes from Craig Hittenback of Morgan Stanley. Your line is now open. Great, thank you. Um, first question, just Rick, talk about the current environment. Like you said, things have, started, have still gotten a bit worse here from a macro perspective. But just curious to see how you're 
seeing distributors act during this period of time. I think last quarter you mentioned you could have shipped 40 more into distribution than you did, and you kind of held back. And so how you manage it this quarter and, and as you look into Q3? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I think the market environment hasn't changed significantly. Uh, we had anticipated that we would see some improvements in the second half of the year, and clearly that's been pushed out. Uh, we do see a little bit of improvement in China, I would say, and I think that comes down to just the fact that their inventory levels are down where now when they have orders, they have to place, they have to order product to be able to supply those. However, at the same time, we've seen Europe weaken and we've seen the U.S. weaken. Uh, you know, when you look at our distributor partners, they're clearly not having the same performance levels they were as you look at their announcement of their results, uh, with even, uh, uh, one of them doing a pre-announcement associated with it. So I think the environment continues to stay uh, quite uncertain. Uh, the, uh, the improvements that we had anticipated uh, have definitely been moved out, although we still are improving slightly, as we showed from the base. Um, clearly, uh, automotive is, uh, is uh, improving. We've been fortunate that we had the strength of our infrastructure and 5G deployment over the last couple of quarters, and clearly the large mobile customer that deployed on more broadly base in Q2 that then requires a little bit of adjustment in Q3 after they've filled up their supply chain. So all of that comes together to kind of create a little bit of an uncertain environment, I would say, on a continuous basis, and not the uptick that we had anticipated uh, for the for Q3 and going forward, all you know at this point yet. Okay, appreciate that the context there, Rick. And then just to follow up for Kurt on the automotive side, particularly for BMS, just kind of how are you feeling about from a design perspective, what you're seeing in, in the market for for new designs around BMS. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Um, now clearly, uh, we do see continued strong traction on the on the design side uh, since BMS is 100% a function of the traction and penetration of um, all levels of electric vehicles, all the way from, uh, from mild hybrids over hybrids to uh, fully electric vehicles. Uh, our traction on the design wind side is good, and we do see now in the second half of this year uh, the first more significant um, shipments going. Uh, I think we talked earlier about the fact that a large European OEM is going into full production um, in the second half of this year with a fully electric vehicle, uh, which we which we serve 100%. Uh, so from that perspective, um, we are very much on track, Greg, uh, with what we had expected on on the BMS side. Uh, I, I might want to give you a little bit more uh, detail on the different levels uh, and the different silicon levels, content silicon levels in uh, in the different uh, uh, sorts of vehicles. So we are especially focused now and have a very high success rate in the low and mid voltage uh, electric vehicles. This contains mild hybrids and full hybrid vehicles. Uh, in those vehicles, we do see um, silicon content from NXP in a range of uh, $50 to $90 per car. That contains the microcontroller and it contains all the analog front-end chips on each of the battery cells. Obviously, the larger the batteries, the more cells, the more analog front-ends and the higher the silicon content. That's why I give you this range of $50 to $90. For those particular vehicles, our design win rate continues to be uh, in a range of, I would say, 80% hit rate. So from all the visibility we have into open design win funnel, we win, we continue to win about 80%, uh, which is truly high. Uh, this is next to the fully electric vehicles, where I just quoted to you that um, with this large European OEM, we are going into production as we speak. Those cars we call high-voltage um, BMS systems, so they typically go all the way up to 800 volts. Uh, they have a somewhat higher silicon content. Uh, here we can cover between 80 and $160 uh, per vehicle, and also there our traction is good, but not as high as the 80%, which I quoted for the low to mid-voltage uh, cars. So, Greg, I, I know that went a little bit deeper uh, than you might have expected, but since 
this is such an area of high interest, I felt it was appropriate to give you a bit more granularity here. Appreciate that. Thank you. Operator, we'll take the next uh, caller, please. Thank you. And our next question comes from John Pitzer of Credit Suisse. Your line is now open. Yeah, good morning, guys. Congratulations on the solid results. My first question, just on inventory management, you guys did a really good job in the June quarter, um, both with channel inventory and inventory on your own balance sheet. Peter, I'm kind of curious if you can give us some sort of guidance looking into September of how you think your own inventory days will trend. And I guess importantly, as part of your gross margin target of 55% exiting the year, were there any utilization actions that you've taken that, that were a headwind that, that start to become a tailwind as you thought about managing inventory? Um, as always, really good questions, John. Um, first of all, on, on distribution, you know, we've talked in the past that we, we just manage the distribution inventory really, really tightly and, and don't ship in until they're willing, to, until they more or less proven they've shipped out. Um, in terms of uh, internal inventory, it's uh, it's been a challenge the last three or four quarters to uh, to show an improvement in inventory as the revenues um, uh, kind of suffered from the, uh, the the kind of lack of demand in the marketplace. But we finally caught up uh, this quarter. My internal target is uh, 95 days. Uh, I'm not sure I can kind of get there. Uh, in this coming quarter, uh, but uh, I would not expect our inventory to go up in terms of days. So um, it, sh it should be somewhere between 98 and, uh, and 100 days. Uh, we have been hit by some utilization, uh, utilization issues, as you were suggesting, in Q1, Q2, and Q3, and, and we'll see some of the relief from that in, uh, uh, in Q4. Um, um, so, yeah, there you go. I think it's uh, probably particularly worthwhile to point out, John, that as you can tell from our inventory, we w we've been very cautious in, with our manufacturing operations, so we have not tried to load them up uh, to put product in inventory as we understand some of our competitors have. That's helpful. And then, Rick, maybe as my follow-up, I wonder if you could just comment a little bit about the U.S.-China uh, trade issues and, and whether or not either directly or indirectly the Huawei band impacted either your June quarter or September quarter, either on the mobile or the infrastructure side. Yeah, uh, so I think, you know, the uh, trade issues between the U.S. and China continue to be uh, quite unclear. Um, we really are not the most uh, knowledgeable uh, source of uh, information. Uh, relative to uh, Huawei specifically, we continue to follow the U.S. guidelines and trade policies. Uh, we, are, we have been shipping and uh, will ship again in Q3. Uh, there are some limited product areas where we have U.S. source technology uh, that we have not been able to ship to Huawei at the current time, but it's pretty de minimis impact, not really a significant uh, financial impact for NXP. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you. And our next question comes from William Stein of SunTrust. Your line is now open. Uh, great. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, first, I'm hoping you can comment on um, uh, margins or, or uh, said another way, OPEX. I think you've provided a sort of goalpost to get to 23.5% of REVs uh, spend on OPEX by Q4. It, uh, I assume that's uh, pushed out a little bit owing to the uh, uh, slightly slower demand you highlighted, but any update there would be helpful. Thank you. Um, we continue to manage OPEX uh, pretty, uh, pretty tightly. Um, we're going full out to get to 16% uh, uh, on R&D and 7.5% uh, for SDNA, you've seen uh, in um, uh, both in our Q2 actual and our Q3 guidance, we do have uh, uh, some flexibility on on what we on what we can do. And um, I think Rick talked in the past that we've uh, not been replacing uh, uh, attrition uh, as we go forward. And you know, and certainly any hiring we do uh, for new positions is very very limited. Uh, so that's helped us. We do have some uh, um, 
uh, flexibility with our in incentive uh, compensation. Uh, so, um, um, you know, reflecting the, uh, the, the lack of uh, growth in the business is, uh, has had an impact on our incentive comp uh, compensation. Um, and, uh, but on the, on the other hand, you know, we continue to invest uh, aggressively in the, in the programs that we think uh, will drive the future success of our, uh, our company. So, you, you know, you see uh, mask charges in particular are, are usually a big item, can move cost around from quarter to quarter. But we've, we've absolutely, we've not given up on the, the 16 and 7.5% will, and uh, um, we'll either get there or get very close, I think, this year. And talk about that for future years as well. Yeah, well, it's probably worthwhile to add that we've also taken out low performers, several hundreds of low performers, as we've tried to manage our cost base uh, in addition to the attrition non-replacement that Peter had talked about. So we continue to be very tight relative to our investments and, and go through a lot of uh, review of the strategic investments we're making to ensure that uh, the timing is absolutely required, but yet uh, we want to be sure that we're not putting any of the growth plans in any of our customer relationships in any kind of risk or jeopardy at all. That's uh, great and very helpful. I appreciate it. If I can follow up um, on the handset growth and subsequent sort of fall off in the coming quarter, uh, I thought that either last quarter or intra-quarter you had highlighted at least one other region where there was strength outside of China. Is, are, are you seeing a broader uh, than anticipated adoption of um, of mobile wallet, and did you see that in the quarter? What, am I correct that there were there was more than just this yes. one vendor of China you referred to? There, there definitely is. Uh, we've been very successful in India, as we mentioned, where the mobile wallet has actually been deployed on on phones as low as a twenty five dollar phone. Uh, now, in the current quarters, uh, you know, they already filled up their supply chain and they're kind of trying to absorb that and, um, and, and achieve their deployment to the market. So it's not nearly as significant an impact in uh, Q2 or even the Q3 outlook as it has been earlier, uh, but it definitely represents a, another a significant proof point. But this customer in China, the encouraging thing was we've been very successful with them on their high-end uh, smartphone deployments. And because of the uh, success we've had with China Transit and the ease of use of uh, passengers getting on transit systems in a much more effective manner, they've now deployed this across their entire portfolio. And uh, they are very aggressive in their intent and goals in increasing their position in the mobile market. And uh, so we're encouraged about being able to support them. But in Q2 specifically, they ramped up as they made their decision to go across the entire portfolio, we had to ramp up their supply chain, and then we go through a normalization process uh, in future quarters. So the Q2 uh, did have a ramp associated with that that then falls off in Q3 for that specific customer in China. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. And our next question comes from Stacy Rascon of Bernstein Research. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my question. I wanted to ask you a little about the three-year model. That, that model was, I guess, starting in 2019 and going forward for a few years. But 2019, obviously, is going to be weaker than anticipated. How does the weakness in 2019 affect that three-year model at all? Um, and where does the, um, I guess, additional growth that would have to come in the last two years uh, to make up for the weakness in the first year? Where does that growth come from? So, Stacy, it was actually 2018 through 2021. So the base year was 2018. So okay. Really, uh, we don't see that being a material impact. I think what we could see is some of the, the uh, categories, the areas that we have, uh, changing somewhat. But we believe that in total uh, we're still on track. But, you know, we have to go through the process, and it depends, obviously, on how long this slowdown in the industry were to continue. Uh, but really the key for this is the design wins and the company-specific uh, ramp in revenue that we have associated with that, where we continue to be very encouraged in the growth areas of automotive that we talked about, uh, specifically in radar in the near term for level two and three. 
the crossover processors that continue to be a, a strong contributor and will continue to add more and more as we go forward in the future quarters with the uh, increased revenue associated with that. And clearly 5G uh, representing an opportunity above what we actually had in the growth guidelines at that time. So I think we're still in the ballpark associated with it, uh, but uh, we clearly have to do some work and understand where, how long it takes us to get through uh, this industry slowdown to actually be able to confirm that, Stacy. Got it. Thanks. I guess to follow up on that around auto, so the auto business for the first three quarters of the year with, with the guidance down call like mid to high single digits, and with uh, the strength in radar and BMS and some of the others that are growing quite a bit, it, it implies sort of the more traditional part of the portfolio is even worse than that. So, like, obviously SARS down this year, but it's not going to be down, I don't think, that much. I mean, is this just inventory correction? And if that's the case, I mean, is it reasonable to expect that to rebound um, as the inventory sort of flush out as, as, as we, we drive into next year? Would it be reasonable to assume that we could do better than normal um, next year coming off of this? Yeah, Stacey, uh, this is Kurt. Let me, um, let me uh, try and answer that. So, uh, first of all, yes, the... Um, uh, the latest SAR forecast, and you know that we typically use IHS, uh, has deteriorated, unfortunately, again. Uh, so I think a quarter ago we talked about a 3% SAR decline this year. Mm -hmm. The latest IHS forecast we got just 10 days ago was minus 4%, so a 4% yeah. decline. Um, and actually, if you look through the reports from the big tier ones, uh, so like Continental, Aptiv, uh, Bosch, and others, they estimate more like 5%. Now, our, our model still sits on IHS, which, which is a firm, firm third-party source, but indeed it has deteriorated, uh, obviously then somewhere in the minus 4 to minus 5% area. Now, uh, coming back to your question, um, yes, this inventory effect is something we've, we've seen through the past cycles too, uh, which means that the, the auto semi-market declined stronger uh, going into this and bouncing back stronger uh, going out of it. Um, the question is obviously when is that moment of, um, of uh, change of direction, which, uh, which I don't dare to forecast. The only thing I would tell you is that um, if you look on an annual growth basis into our quarters, then in quarter two we did report a minus 10% decline in automotive, and the quarter three guide, which we just gave you, is now minus 7. So we see at least from a Q2 or against Q2 comparison perspective annually, it's getting, uh, it's getting slightly better. Uh, if this is the indication of things really moving out, I don't know. Uh, but at least also the SAR is um, reported by, um, by IHS in the second half to get slightly better, led by China, because China seasonally always has a much better second half than the first half and IHS is uh, thinking about a 14% second half over first half growth in auto production in China. I don't know if that is true, but certainly directionally it should be right that, that this is changing now, uh, second half to first half. Got it. Thank you. Right. Thanks, Thanks. Stacey. Thank you. And our next question comes from Ross Seymour of Deutsche Bank. Your line is now open. Hi guys, thanks for letting me ask a question. I wanted to focus on the industrial and IoT side of things. I know the crossover processors are, are a great source of growth and you guys have been in line with your, your guidance in the last quarter and, and seem to be accelerating seasonally in the third quarter. But overall, it's still down about 15% year over year. Can you talk a little bit about what's weighing on that? Is it just the inventory burn in the channel? Is there anything else? And how do you expect that growth to resume, somewhat similar to the last question, once that inventory burn is done, is there kind of a supersized reacceleration as the channel starts to refill? So, Ross, I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. If you look at it, our industrial and IoT for the, for the last couple of quarters have been down, you know, around 14% year over year. Uh, and our guidance, while uh, up 8%, uh, in Q3 would still be down around that same level uh, year over year. I think I don't think that we can be specific on the inventory levels. You know, you got to remember that on the industrial and IoT, probably 80% of that goes through the distribution channel, and so we're really kind of at the uh, mercy, if you will, of our distribution partners to understand what's happening with the customers. Uh, you know, there's not any perception. 
of, uh, of ongoing inventory, it's really this uh, quagmire. And, you know, what I said last quarter, you know, the market's kind of frozen, uh, specifically in China, with uh, the fear about what's going to happen in the trade tensions. And, and we don't see a significant improvement overall. Although I do think we see a little bit of improvement in China, but at the same time, we've seen a weakening in Europe and the U.S. that, that kind of offsets that. So in total, we're kind of in the same position in industrial and IoT. Now, at the same point, as you look at uh, the new design wins that we have in the crossover areas, as those begin to ramp, uh, we should see a, a revenue contribution from that. But that's going to be at a slow rate, and, you know, it'll be a positive contribution, but it won't move the needle significantly on any individual quarter. It's more of the cumulative impact of those design wins and how they get deployed in the market, which uh, clearly should put us in a better position as we go out, you know, a few quarters. Great. That's helpful. And, and for my follow-up, I just wanted to switch over to the common infrastructure and other segments. You talked about the 5G side uh, pausing a bit. Uh, can you just walk through how you see that rolling out for the different stages of 5G and maybe remind us what percentage roughly of that kind of 21, 22% of your total revenues in that segment uh, the common infrastructure side truly represents? Uh, yeah, on a percentage of that, uh, it's uh, uh, probably <clears throat> two-thirds. Yeah, between the RF power and the digital networking business. Yeah, if you include digital networking associated with two thirds, it's probably about a half for the for the RF power, just slightly under a half uh, based on the growth we've seen. But really, the growth that we've seen, Ross, has been in the massive mode deployment, where they're expanding the capacity associated with their installed infrastructure. And now in the future, when, when they move to 5G deployments, they can upgrade that with a software deployment to be able to facilitate uh, 5G. So really what we're seeing that's creating a significant increase in revenue has been the massive BIMO deployment and not 5G per se. We've seen some 5G impact, but it's really been much more significantly weighted towards massive MIMO. And, you know, we basically have a pause, as we've been saying, that we would anticipate a pause after, you know, our customers are ramping up their supply chain. We still see very positive scenario in what's going on and, and clearly uh, uh, continued deployment uh, uh, through the rest of this year and next year in massive MIMO and believe our success is uh, is quite positive in that area. And then we would anticipate seeing the 5G ramp itself, uh, you know, happening much more strongly in 2020. And that kind of depends on when it, when it uh, gets rolled out in China. We've seen some pull-in of the rollout of 5G base stations in China as they appear to want to accelerate their 5G deployment. Thank you. Thanks, Ross. Thanks. Thank you. And our next question comes from Vivek Arya from Bank of America, Maryland. Your line is still open. Uh, thanks for taking my question. I had um, two as well. Uh, first on uh, gross margins, um, I believe, Peter, you mentioned that you are um, still kind of targeting 55% exiting uh, Q4, so that would be about 130 basis points or so sequential improvement. I'm curious, what are the puts and takes around that? Uh, you know, what kind of revenue or mix assumptions underlie that? Uh, because usually your Q4, um, right, has been, you know, up some years, it's been down some years. If I assume it's flat, uh, that would uh, signal uh, some year-on-year -year sales decline. So I'm just, you know, curious to understand what is the sensitivity uh, um, of gross margins to that uh, kind of revenue uh, profile. Uh, well, what I've talked about in the uh, in the past, I, I've said based on uh, uh, flat revenue from Q418 to Q419, uh, we would move up from um, 53 to 55%. And I talked about, you know, we we saw some headwinds, normal headwinds from price, so ASP, and they'd be offset by mix. But we had about 230 basis points of self-help. Uh, and I think just over half of that was in... Um, supplier pricing, or maybe just less than half. Um, so where am I at the moment? So at the moment, I'm really, really confident on the self-help part. So I think that's, uh, that's in the bag, and we've started to see uh, um, some of the impacts of that from Q1 into Q2 and Q2 into Q3. Um, 
I, uh, at the moment, I, uh, I really don't know where we'll end up on, on revenue. Uh, you know, as we said in our, our, our comments, um, although the uh, uh, situation hasn't gotten worse, it's, uh, it's um, you know, versus where we were 90 days ago, it hasn't, uh, uh, hasn't strengthened and we feel a, a little bit uh, uh, more uncomfortable with than we did then. Um, so flat revenue, I'd say 55% is in the bag. Um, if revenue is not flat off Q4, then previously we've said, and it's a very, very rough guideline, a 5% drop in revenue is about 100 basis points of, uh, of impact to gross margin. But it really depends on what the mix of the, uh, the change is, and is it internal or external. So... Uh, um, it's not uh, uh, not an absolute. So, in, I guess in terms of things I have under our control, very very confident, incrementally more confident than I was three uh, uh, three months ago. Uh, but we'll need to wait and see how the revenue plays out for Q4. Definitely think we've done the right thing structurally, uh, and it'll put us in good shape for when uh, when things uh, things come back. Thanks. Uh, and for my follow up. Uh, I'm curious about the 30% of your business in automotive uh, tied to ADAS and electrification where you, um, I think, um, break in the past set a 25-30% growth target. Um, how did that do in Q2 and what are the trends in, in the second half? Um, do you think the macro environment is impacting um, that growth part of the autos business or, or there is a secular aspect uh, to it and, um, you know, that is still continuing per, per your original targets. Thank you. I'll make a couple of comments and I'll let Kurt talk. I, you know, I think, Vivek, the, the thing is, is as we see uh, clearly a softness in auto demand, it does have some impact on those growth areas as well. They're not ramping up quite as fast. They still are growing very significantly, but not quite as fast as we would have anticipated originally. So it does have some impact, but clearly we see uh, a strong growth associated with those areas, and specifically radar. Yeah, Rick. Um, so clearly, we, we do confirm double-digit growth. I mean, we did achieve that in, uh, in Q2, uh, as expected. But um, with the SAR being maybe then more in a minus 5% uh, area versus, uh, versus a zero or plus two, obviously there is some impact. Um, but, I mean, this is nothing of, uh, of, of, of any relevance for the mid to longer term uh, because the, the REMs are still very much dependent on penetration of, of that functionality as Rick had laid out for, for radar in, the, uh, in his prepared remarks. So uh, over and above, uh, we are very confident uh, to continue to expect 25 to 30% uh, revenue growth over the next three years in that portion of the auto business. And I, I just want to remind you again that it's mainly ADAS radar, uh, digital clusters, and somewhat later, because it comes today from a smaller base, uh, the battery management business. Thank you. Thank you. And our next question comes from Blaine Curtis of Barclays. Your line is now open. Hey guys, thanks for taking my question. I have uh, two. Just one, uh, just on the OPEX side, I, I noticed you moved uh, about 80 million bucks to uh, asset held for sale. I know it's fairly small. Just wondering if you could comment on that or if you can't, just maybe uh, just strategically any comments on, on that kind of initiative. And then uh, you mentioned UWB. Maybe sounds like that will get uh, maybe some adoption on the mobile side this year in the market. I'm just kind of curious for you when you uh, uh, see that ramping and see any way you can kind of size that market. Thanks. Uh, so the asset held for sale, we can't tell you specifically what it is, but we're – uh, we're doing due diligence to um, dispose of a, a very small part of our business uh, at the moment, and you know, hopefully, we'll wrap that up before the uh, the end of the year. So we move that asset to uh, uh, to help for sale. And it's non-strategic in a business that we just felt like was better off being in somebody else's hands than ours. On, on uh, ultra-wideband, it really won't start shipping till 2020, not this year. Uh, and, um, you know, we're extremely excited about the opportunity there. In fact, I'm going to let Kurt make some comments on that as well. Yeah, so it's really an ecosystem play which leverages in an excellent way our strong foothold from a technology and market perspective in secure car access as well as mobile transactions and security. 
Uh, revenue impact uh, we will start to see by mid of next year um, uh, ramping. Uh, we think this will be a market which is almost a billion in, uh, in 2024. Uh, and as Rick explained earlier, uh, with our first mover advantage, with our strong foothold and creation of the ecosystem itself, we do think we will have a leading market share in that, um, uh, in that field. So very exciting, Blake. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And our next question comes from Matt Ramsey of Cowan. Your line is now open. Uh, thank you very much. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to follow up to, to the last question there on UWB. Um, Kurt, maybe you could talk a little bit about what other standards are out there that are competing with, with UWB. And then on the flip side, um, are there other ecosystem partners and potentially other chip makers that are involved such that this could be an industry-wide standard as it rolls out? Thanks. Yeah, so on the standard side, um, there is an IEEE initiative underway um, for a very firm standardization of the, of the physical uh, layer uh, hardware protocol to make sure that indeed uh, different vendors can ship compatible products. Uh, that has been underway for a while. It is supported by all the key companies uh, through the whole value chain. So clearly any ingredients from our experience which is needed for a successful connectivity standard is fully in place. Um, relative to competing uh, technologies or standards, the only one which, which directionally comes somewhere in the proximity but, but really doesn't get there really is, uh, is Bluetooth Low Energy, uh, which has some ranging capability, but it, it lacks by far the precision of ultra-wideband. So I, I just want to reiterate, the key feature of ultra-wideband is it measures time of flight, and through that it can detect exactly where the communicating objects are relative to each other. So it's all about distance uh, precision and distance uh, measurement. Bluetooth Low Energy can do a little bit of that, but it's far from it from a precision perspective. That's why our key partners along the value chain have clearly decided for ultra-wideband. I mean, that's a very, very uh, clear and definitive uh, choice in that, uh, in that field. The other one which maybe didn't come across clearly, a lot of this has to do with security. So we always play in door access or car access uh, applications, which we are uh, seeing here, together with our secure element. So it is the combination of the secure element and the ultra-wideband connectivity technology which makes the use case fly. And that combination, I dare to say, is pretty unique. Got you. Thank, thanks for that, Color. Um, just as a quick follow-up, I, I continue to get the question from investors, so I'll just uh, bring it up again, the, the visibility towards doubling the, the Marvell um, revenue run rate of the business you're acquiring. If you guys have any more color on um, design wind pipeline visibility or, or I guess a focus on Wi-Fi 6, um, it's just a question that keeps coming up, so I'm just relaying it along. Thanks very much. Sure. I think, you know, our confidence comes from the combination of the portfolio, their leading technology in Wi-Fi 6, our broad-based distribution channel, that's much more uh, broad-based than Marvell. While Marvell has a, a fine distribution channel, uh, our position in distribution clearly puts us in a better basis. And the fact is, as we talk about our processing customers, uh, two-thirds of our design wins have had Wi-Fi connectivity associated with it. And being able to supply a uh, Wi-Fi 6 solution in combination with our processing puts us in a really unique position to be able to grow that business much faster. So I think all of those things are the combination that, that really gives us the ability to, to uh, project doubling that business in a relatively short period of time, and the reason why it was so critical to us to be able to meet our customers' requirements. Um, you know, we were very fortunate to have the funds available from the Qualcomm breakup fee uh, to be able to put uh, connectivity in place. And so we're looking forward to closing the transaction so we can offer a complete solution for our customers. So let me, let me maybe just add that now where we are some way into this process also with, uh, with customers, clearly the customer reactions are very positive and very reconfirming on the, on the fit 
of the of the of the of the portfolio comp uh, complementary nature of Wi-Fi 6 with our apps processes. So what was theory in the first place? Obviously, we get now more specific feedback from customers, and that's both for uh, industrial as well as for auto. Is very reconfirming to the numbers which we had put out. Thank you. Sonia, Sonia, we'll take one last question this morning, please. And our last question comes from Tashia Hari of Goldman Sachs. Your line is now open. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks very much for squeezing me in. I, I just had one on capital allocation. Um, after the Marvell acquisition, assuming it closed um, in line with schedule, um, how should we think about the balance between M&A and uh, dividends and buybacks? Would it be fair to assume that you feel like your technology and IP portfolio is somewhat complete post-Marvell, or would M&A continue to play a critical role uh, in your strategy? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I think we have m most of the critical components that we really feel like we need going forward. Uh, you know, I'm sure that we'll always have some tuck-in acquisitions that we need to do to uh, to either strengthen a technical position or, or uh, with some other pieces uh, uh, you know that happened, but but the uh, Marvell acquisition on the connectivity side is clearly one that was significant and one that we were getting a lot of uh, demand from our customers. So I think that really fills out the the most of the requirement. I I think uh, you know as we look at analog attach, we're uh, trying to see what we can do to improve that. That's a focus area for us. Uh, fortunately, we have a lot of internal capability associated with that, specifically in the PIMIC area, that we can uh, ship alongside of our processing capability to drive a complete solution. But I think you're absolutely right. Most of our focus on the cash return uh, post the Marvell transaction will be focused on share repurchase and, um, and our dividend uh, as we move forward. And, and um, we've talked about that we would anticipate or plan to increase our dividend on an annual basis, moving it up to more in line with uh, our normal uh, industrial uh, semiconductor industry peers. Thank you. Thanks. 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 Thank so, uh, so thanks, everyone, for joining us this morning. Uh, we clearly uh, felt like that we had uh, good performance in Q2. Uh, and while we see improvements off that Q2 base continuing, they're not at the same rate we would have anticipated 90 days ago, as we have seen um, a little bit of a reset in the marketplace uh, based on uh, the continued trade friction and the uncertainty that's now beginning to have an impact in other regions of the world as well. But we're encouraged about our design wins and the portfolio we have and continuing to be in a position to uh, outgrow the market going forward and, uh, and create and continue to increase significant shareholder value. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate your attendance today. Have a good day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating in today's conference. This concludes today's program. You may all disconnect.